The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, thank you all for for coming this morning. Um, as I mentioned, I wanted to begin with the chant about the reflection on sharing blessings because I've been so um, resistant to it. And I used to be really embarrassed whenever we chanted it here. I was particularly concerned that whoever was new to Common Ground, so the newcomers here today, um, would think that we were um, incredibly superstitious or part of a cult. And um, you know, with the invocation of the Lord of Death, um, highest gods, evil forces, celestial beings. Um, although a Quaker um, friend of mine says that the Buddhists are the only community, only spiritual community that she knows of who are willing to take seriously alien life. So, <laughs> um, um, so um, I was trained as a professional philosopher, and by temperament, I am really pragmatic, skeptical, empirical, and that's why I found such a congenial home in this practice. Um, and I'm in alignment with um, the great time master, uh, Bhikkhu uh, Buddha Dasa, who says that what's reborn over and over is not the embodied self, but that self that identifies and clings. But this chant actually is a chant about uh, the paramis, uh, which are in Buddhism um, the perfections, Buddhist virtues. And this is the parami of generosity, about the goodness of sharing. So I decided years ago, to approach this chant as an act of imaginative generosity. I mean, it's really easy for me to wish to share the goodness of my practice with um, beloved teachers, my deceased parents, my friends, my family, and um, you know, the love of this planet, uh, affection for the sun, the moon, uh, gratitude for its star that lights our days. And in loving-kindness practice, I really worked with my heart not to harbor ill will toward those who, out of a tangled constellation of causes and conditions, do really terrible things. Um, so I thought about sort of wishing well in the um, imaginative subjunctive, you know, if there were a lord of death, if there were a celestial being. Um, and I've tried not to do this with this sort of skeptical sneer, but to really be open-hearted and sincere. And it, this also sort of invites me in a way to reflect on my own cognitive stinginess, you know, about what I allow to exist in, in the world. So I'd like you to hold this question throughout this talk so we can explore it at the end. What am I trying to cultivate in my Dharma practice? Which is to say, it's one way of asking, what am I trying to do with this life? Mindfulness practice is sometimes described as remembering to be aware of the present moment's experience. It's also talked about as um, an intentional attention without judgment or reactivity. Sometimes we talk about it as an aspiration to see things as they really are. Although the uh, wonderful... Um, Buddhist scholar and teacher uh, Stephen Batchelor 
says this would be better, uh, less ontologically expressed as seeing things as they are happening now. That if we're seeing things as they really are, it kind of fixes things. But if we have our aspiration to see things as they really are happening now, we are more open to the arising and passing away of experience, which is, of course, the great truth of our lives, arising and and passing away. I love Mary Oliver's um, instructions for living a life. There are three of them. Pay attention. Be astonished. And then the third is tell about it. And this seems to me to be wonderful advice for meditators, opening to experience without an agenda or expectations, um, a willingness to be like totally gobsmacked by the complexity and um, the beauty of the world in all of its dimensions, and then the generosity of sharing this with others. As I mentioned, I've been doing gratitude practice for a while, and I really notice that when I have gratitude or appreciation, there is just such a natural um, impulse to want to share that um, with others. I don't know if, if I expect many of you here, uh, some many, have been to the amazing exhibition at um, the Minneapolis Institute right now, um, sort of the hearts of our people, wonderful, wonderful, amazing um, exhibition uh, curated by uh, indigenous women of contemporary indigenous women artists and and in the past and to just see the beauty I mean you just feel like I feel like I just sort of need to tell about it um, seeing things it's I don't want to go by myself I want to go there with a friend that we can sort of ooh and ah together and just be so delighted with that and I think that that often is our our natural response to to beauty um, is to is to just really want to share it. When we appreciate something, we want to share it. And if we are um, the recipients of another's generosity, we really, really want to share that both with the giver and with with other people about how amazing it was that someone did this generous generous thing um, for us. So um, this, this idea about telling, you know, so often we think about Buddhist practice as really solitary, you know, but there's a, a passage from the early Buddhist scriptures that gets quoted a lot in which Ananda, who was the Buddha's younger cousin and his attendant, um, says to the Buddha, you know, venerable one, I think that having good friends is half the holy life. And the Buddha says, oh, no, Ananda. Don't say that, Ananda. That is not true, Ananda. Good friends are the whole of the holy life. Having our good friends, having our companions along the way, people that we we can be astonished and share with, and also that when our hearts are broken, we can share with too, that that really is um, the holy holy life. Um, So there's a, a wonderful... Uh, passage where um, King Pasanendi talks to the Buddha. And in the Buddha's lifetime, it was um, a <laughs> lifetime when things were really changing in the Gangetic Plain, that it was moving from 
more feudal states to more nationalistic states. It was a time of tremendous political, philosophical, unheaval. New religions were being formed. The Jain religion was formed around the time of the Buddha. Lots and lots and lots of change. And the Buddha had two kings who were his friends, and they were both his patrons. And one was King um, Bimbisara, who seems to have been uh, a relatively um, wise, devoted follower of the Buddha. And then there was also King uh, Pesenity. Interestingly enough, both these kings were victims of of parricide. They were both killed by their sons before the death of the Buddha. And the last years of the Buddha are really colored by the fact that these two, he was living in a time when these, the, his two patrons, in a way, were both killed by their sons. And in his latter days, he is heading north toward his home place as uh, a place of, of safety. And he dies uh, along the way. But King Passenity, who was known to be kind of a, a glutton, and he had a very wise wife, Malinka, and, uh, but he was... Uh, he was sort of always asking for the Buddha's advice and then having a hard time taking it. Um, but, he, but he said to the Buddha at one time, he said, Venerable one, is there one thing that secures both the good pertaining to this world and the world that follows afterward? And the Buddha replied that the one thing is, and the Pali word is, apamada. Now, here's a little disquisition. Apamada is the <clears throat> negation of pamada. And pamada means usually negligence, indolence. It's often drunkenness. So the Buddha talks about sometimes in other suttas about how you know people who are sort of intoxicated with good health, intoxicated with vitality, like they don't think there's, they think it's going to be this way always. So that's pamada. So apamada is the opposite of indolence, negligence. So not indolent, not negligent. But Stephen Batchelor and some other scholars translate it as care. The most important thing is care, the opposite of negligence. And what's beautiful about care is it's sort of twofold. It's both that vigilant attention. We do things with care, with vigilant attention, But it's also that concern for well-being, concern for our own well-being, and concern for another. So the Buddha tells King Pesenity, just as the footprint of the elephant can contain the footprints of all the other animals, so apamada, care, is the one thing that contains all good. So care is what kind of contains our whole practice. Interestingly enough, the last words of the Buddha are usually translated to be, all conditioned things are impermanent, practice with apamada, which often gets translated as practice with heed, practice with diligence. But I think, again, practice with care, this vigilant attention, but also this relational component, this understanding of the care for well-being. So since our life is our practice, the question is, how do we live with care in both senses? And one response, and I think this is a really good response, is to say, well, let's work with the five ethical precepts or the five mindfulness trainings, which are 
not to kill or cause harm, not to take anything that is not freely given, not to engage in sexual activity that harms oneself or harms others, not to engage in false or harmful speech, and not to consume entities that lead to pamada, lead to carelessness. So on this, it's not just people usually think about that last one as just intoxicants, alcohol, and drugs. But if we look at it, what are the sorts of things that we consume that make us careless? Television shows, video games, um, you know, whatever it is, what is it that keeps us actually from observing the four previous precepts? The fifth precept is really around helping us be careful with the first four. And I reiterate my intention to work with these every single day, and lots of people do. It's part of their practice. They do their morning practice. They just kind of go over the five precepts. But I struggle to make compassionate and wise decisions consistent with my intention. And I want to give you two examples of where I really struggled. So about two weeks ago, my husband and I had to make a decision um, about ending the life of a dog of ours. I'm a little weepy, but uh, he was almost 17, and um, he was completely blind in one eye, and it, it was oozing and it was weepy, partially blind in the other. He got his high blood pressure pills twice a day. Um, he uh, had always been a picky eater, and for the last six months, you know, we'd make an omelet, cut it up into little itty bitty pieces, feed it piece by piece by piece. He'd eat kibble piece by piece by piece, hand fed only. He would never eat out of a bowl. And I think it's partly because he had a hard time seeing. So he didn't eat out of a bowl. And we'd give him, you know, and uh, we'd clean his eyes twice a day. And he'd have to go out often three or four in the morning. But, you know, we really loved him. And we were prepared to do this just about forever. Um, but um, one day, he just, he'd, he'd been sort of quivery. And he just lost the use of a back leg. And he couldn't stand. He couldn't get himself up. He couldn't stand. He couldn't walk. And, um, you know, like, okay, so this is how it is, and it's not going to get any better. And so, you know, um, although at this point he was still interested and kind of enjoying his life, there's that question about, you know, when, um, you know, what do you do? We take seriously that life is precious, and um, I want to work with this training about not killing. But clearly, we were making a decision about um, having our dog's life ended, having our dog, I mean, we could say euthanasia, put to sleep. But actually, it's, it's having, having a dog killed. And you know, this is a tremendous moral responsibility. He's a, he's a member of the family. And um, you know, um, do we wait until he is suffering terribly? You know, sometimes it's said that you never know what the right time is. You only know when you've waited too long. And that's really, it's really hard. Now, I thought, if he had the choice today, would he want to say, okay, I want one more day? And um, so we just made this choice. And very kind, very compassionate vet came to the house and you know, gave him a sedative. And when he was you know, really sleeping, gave him a lethal injection. But, you know, I don't think this is, morally neutral. You know, I think this really has, 
has import about the decisions we make about um, how we care for those whose care is entrusted to us. So, um, you know, and I felt a lot of sadness and a lot of gratitude for his life, gratitude that he could have such a peaceful death, but it was a death of our doing, you know, and that's, and I take this training every morning. So another training that I work with daily is that second precept. I'm determined not to possess anything that should belong to others, what is given to me freely. So I live here in Seward, about eight blocks from here, right around the corner and up the street from the old uh, common ground. And um, I've lived here since 1982, in the same house. And um, according to the recently published People's History of the Seward Neighborhood, the land that is now Seward had no known settlements before the arrival of the Europeans. And this may have been because this Dakota land was so sacred. It's near the Bedote, you know, the confluence, which is where of the um, Minnesota and the Mississippi, which is where the Dakota people say the first people came from. They were born at that confluence. And Dakota women historically would come and try to have their children near the confluence so they would see the same light as the first people. Very touching. And there are, you know, there's the cold spring, um, spring near there, and the, uh, what we now call the St. Anthony Falls. So this was, you know, really precious land. The, the nearest Dakota settlement, as far as I understand it, was the one that is on the western side of Bede Makaska, you know, formerly Lake Calhoun. There was a settlement there. And there was um, sugaring done here, right where the Franklin Bridge is. There used to be a big stand of maples, and the Dakota traditionally um, sugared there. So it wasn't that they didn't use this land, but it was not a permanent settlement. And this, the uh, hypothesis is, is because it was too close to the sacred lands. It was so energetically um, alive. So here we are right now, sitting on a place that is on what may be sacred Dakota land. How do we work with that? You know, it it is a grief to me that, and I don't know, you know, I I don't know what to do. You know, I can, I sort of resolve that I'm going to take care of the river, so I try to be really vigilant about picking cans and bottles out of storm drains or in gutters so they don't go into the river. I try to be as good an ally as I can to indigenous people. But that's um, a clumsy thing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a conundrum. Or Zen people would say it's a con. But here I am benefiting, living with something that was not freely given to me. I am the beneficiary of someone that was not freely given to me. And all of us here at Common Ground are beneficiaries of something that was not freely given. So being careful requires our our full attention. And as Sharon Salzberg says, attention is the doorway to compassion. 
Attention is the doorway of compassion. So I want to bring this to a close because I want us to have plenty of time to talk um, by talking about two things this past week that have just really touched me deeply. And the first was uh, I teach a weekly ongoing uh, loving-kindness group in St. Paul on Monday nights. And this week, someone who'd been coming for some time um, spoke about her experience of being homeless. A younger person, and she'd been homeless for, for some time. And she said, I was so invisible to everyone. People looked right through me. I didn't care if people didn't give me money. They could wave or smile, but they didn't. This was the hardest part of being homeless. It was as if I didn't exist. I mean, think about our precept about not killing. This person felt annihilated by the failure to see her, to greet her, to wave to her, just to acknowledge her being. And that just, I, when she said that, I thought, why aren't we talking about this in the Dharma Hall? So I decided I would talk about it in the Dharma Hall. And I was just so, so moved by that because I think that that's not often visible to us. But it, it really hurts when we don't acknowledge someone who is standing right by us, even if we can't give. If we can't give money or we choose not to give money, we can give our kindly acknowledgement. We are practicing for the benefit of that person. So the other thing that happened was a few days later when I was visiting a community member here and a friend who's in hospice right now, and he is going blind with um, a lethal brain tumor. And um, he was in bed, and we were chatting, and a woman across the hall started shouting, Is anybody there? Help me, help me. And I just seen, I know that there had just been attendants in her room. I know that she'd just been left. And um, I just felt myself contract. It was so unpleasant. It was so distressing to hear this person shout out, Help me, help me. Is anybody there? But my dying friend, with the greatest tenderness, just said, Oh, that poor woman. I know how that is. I've been there. Imagine. I mean, I, I, I was contracting with that, and he was opening. I mean, it was so, it was such a beautiful, tender expression of compassion. Not, can you shut the door? Can you get an aid? Can you have somebody deal with her? It was just this, this incredible act of empathetic imagination. Oh, that poor woman. I know how that is. I've been there. I just so, so beautiful. So I want to ask you to respond to the question I posed early on about so what am I doing with this life? And not just to sort of leave you hanging like this, I decided I would prompt you with um, Walt Whitman's uh, response, which is uh, a wonderful um, paragraph, Whitman-esque paragraph of imaginative generosity. So this is what Walt Whitman thinks we should do with our life. This is what you shall do. Love the earth and the sun and the animals. Despise riches. 
give alms to everyone who asks, stand up for the stupid and crazy, devote your income and labor to others, hate tyrants, argue not concerning God, take off your hat to nothing known or unknown, to any man or number of men, go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families, read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life, Re-examine all that you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. So I would love to hear your reflections and responses to um, what is it? What are we doing in this, in this life? Um, this works if you hold it. I didn't turn this on yet. You need to hold it like this. And also, um, just so you know, we're being recorded. It's lovely if you say your name, but if you choose not to, that's okay. Let me turn this on. Who will be the courageous, generous person and start our responses? This is an act of generosity to start out. Uh, this morning I heard just a little bit of Krista Tippett's show, and she had a rabbi uh, that she was uh, conversing with, and he, I only heard a couple sentences that he had to say. I'll go back and listen to the full podcast. And he said, um, uh, every day I, I take some time uh, just to be in silence. And I... Um, cultivate love and I am moving from an I to a we and I thought I just took a breath when I heard that and I thought that is the sum and substance of what my path is thank you hi I'm John Um, So what I'm doing with this Dharma practice and with my life at this point is trying to be a loving and respectful person with all my relationships, even those ones that are very, very brief, such as paying for something at the counter. I try to um, look briefly at their eyes and uh, say thank you. And uh, and the other thing is... um, uh, and this, I think, is, is maybe related to that or maybe encapsulated in that, is that I try to write and play music that creates space for people who are suffering that they can walk through this space and feel uh, comfort and, and love. Um, now, if you listen to the music, you wouldn't probably think that because... <laughs> Because what I, the music is all about what I see, and what I see is not pretty. But the reason I do this is because growing up, there was always uh, lies about what was really going on. And when I finally got the truth, it was so uh, liberating, you know, painful, but liberating. And so that's the way, that's, a, that's what I really hope to do. Seeing things as they really are happening now. Thank you. 
Well, Patrice, I'll say something then. Uh, because you spoke about gratitude. And every time I get in that position where they say, think about what you're grateful for, think about gratitude, I always find myself just sort of numbing up or not knowing. And today, as you talked about that, it sort of came to my understanding that I have lots of things I'm grateful for, but I don't I don't ever express that I'm grateful. I don't quite understand how to do it, I think. How to how to be grateful. And so your ta your bringing that up made me think, okay, this is a challenge for me for the future now is to work on being grateful and understanding it and, and expressing it. So I sort of asking you, are there any practice, any any tricks that, I mean, uh, when you say, are you grateful? I say, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful because I have lots of friends. But I don't get the grateful feeling. I don't understand that. I, don't, I just, I, I recognize I have lots of friends, people that care, but, oh, grateful. Well, that's just something that, I don't know. I'm, so I want to work on it. I'm asking you if there's any tricks. <laughs> well, I actually know one time when you are grateful because Tom, Tom and I, Tom is one of the cluster of volunteers who goes out to practice with guys who are incarcerated. And as we go around the circle, guys always say, I'm really grateful for the volunteers, for the people from the outside who came today, who gave up their Saturday afternoon to be with us. And many, many guys just expressed their extreme gratitude. And we always say, we are so grateful that you have come here. I mean, that I think and that our gratitude, my gratitude practice gets so ramped up by seeing sort of the conditions of men who are doing long sentences, some of them lifetime sentences, even multiple lifetime sentences, um, who come and try to learn a different way of relating to themselves and others, and their gratitude is so palpable, and it's really inspiring. I mean, I often think if those guys can practice in those difficult circumstances, you know, I have no excuse. Um, and so I know that you feel, um, when we leave, we often say, you know, what a great session that was today. Those guys were just so on the mark, or they said they, they just really shared some beautiful things. And so, um, you know, I think sort of um, part of it is just deciding that you're going to attend to it, um, that you're really going to notice when you feel grateful. And I also, this made quite an impression on me. Years ago, I heard, um, I believe it was a Haida elder, it was um, in Alaska, say that, in his community, it is really important whenever you thank someone or express gratitude to do it publicly. That it's not enough just to take someone aside and thank them. But it is really important to publicly acknowledge your gratitude to someone else. And I have really tried to incorporate that and I've also tried to be grateful for 
little things. You know, when someone holds the door for me at the library, I say, oh, you're really kind to me today. Thank you. And, and to be really grateful for all those, those little things and to express it. And I think that that really makes uh, a difference. And also, um, for those of you who've read uh, John Gottman's work on marriage and relationships, it's really, really, really important to do this with your significant other. It's like five to one. Five thank yous for any time you're going to criticize or say something negative. So it, it's also you know, just a great home practice um, for you just to, to really with those people who are in our, our daily lives to express our, our gratitude to them. Kit. Hi, I'm Kit, and I want to be brief. I just, not long ago, it occurred to me that generosity is gratitude in motion. How beautiful. Yeah, generosity, gratitude in motion. My name is Kim, and I want to say publicly thank you. What a beautiful talk. He didn't think I really meant it, but thank you very much for handing me the (laughs) mic. (laughs) In public, I thank you. No, um, it's really interesting about the gratitude and being aware of each, you know, the moments of, of what we're doing and where we are. I noticed yesterday I went on a garden tour. It was a whole-day garden tour. And initially I went to go look at gardens and the beauty of the gardens and whatever. And, but I realized actually the, be- the most beautiful part of the whole thing was the people that I met on this tour. And so being aware of, you know, there were, some of the gardens weren't all that exciting or they went to a winery afterwards. I don't drink. So, but what I found was how grateful I was. I enjoyed the entire tour, and it wasn't so much about why I was there, but the people that I was with, and meeting new people, and um, really building um, and sharing my practice. Actually, some people asked about it, and so being able to share my practice was. I was so grateful for the opportunity, and also for them to hear me. Um, thank you, um, Patrice, for your fierceness and your honesty, um, because I think in many ways you touched upon something that I'm like learning. Um, I had an opportunity to do a, a year of like a lot of practice. And so in, in very peaceful, beautiful settings. And um, and I got back here, um, I realized just how potentially dangerous it can to be cultivating high levels of concentration and even piercing insights without also developing um, a truly compassionate heart. Um, Because when I was in situations or when I'm like daily in situations where I'm looking at some of the madness that you described, so people in intense levels of suffering and many, many more people pretending not to see it and this whole kind of show going on, I was getting extremely aversive and that aversion I'm learning has to be tempered with a soft heart and loving kindness because it's easy just to become part of 
the show. And so I appreciate, you know, the, your wisdom today for that. Thank you so much, Angela. I think it's often the case that when people um, don't respond, don't see that a lot of the most negative behaviors that we have are fear-based. Um, and to really look at that, and you, know, you can both want to change that and have some compassion for it, realizing that, that people are often acting out of this sort of constellation of fear and insecurity and that little congealed, tough self, you know, sense of, of that, that little self in there just trying to fend things off. And we can really have some compassion for that, not to in any way uh, approve of what people are doing, but to see that as fear-based, to see that as ignorance, and to really see if there's a way that we can um, contribute to unbinding that, to, um, to enabling people not to be so afraid, so solitary, so locked down. A lot of our practice is really seeing how the self arises with every kind of identification and hangs on to something, even hanging on to the other thing. I am a good person. I would never harm anyone. You know, and, and your attachment to being a good person in some ways makes you oblivious to the harm that you're doing because you're so attached to, you know, I'm not a racist person, and can often really, that attachment keeps us from seeing how we might benefit from, we do benefit from, systemic racism. Um, sort of just like, you know, I benefit from the fact that these lands were taken from the Dakota. So it's, it's really working with compassion and wisdom. I mean, those are sort of, you know, they, they talk about the two wings of the Dharma, our compassion and wisdom. And we need to develop both of them. And sometimes if we're just focused on having, you know, a sitting practice that's all about, you know, paying moment-to-moment attention to bodily sensations, sort of seeing that arising and passing away, we don't ever get to the point where we open up to seeing the larger suffering of the world, that the practice becomes a refuge for keeping all these other things out. And if our practice is seeing things as they are happening now, it's not just what's happening in this mind on the cushion. It's what's happening in El Paso. It's what's happening in Minneapolis or other places. So we really need to, uh, to keep those two aspects of our practice alive. And there are going to be some times when we, when we, in caring for ourselves, lean more toward one than another. But our aspiration is to keep them in balance. Our practice is to keep them in balance. Any final remarks? Um. My heart's pounding. Like, I just, your honesty and vulnerability 
today sharing how say this with love you you fail um, disrupted so the question you asked about what is this about right like something like love showed up for me right and I'm listening and then emerged this moment where my three year old whines constantly and my response that you helped me see was that it's violent it doesn't have that thing that I think I'm about I'm so disrupted right now because it is such an opportunity to shift. So gratitude is just pouring out of me because, and um, the feeling is just humility. And that, that relationship I'm really curious about, like how, but only because you, you, you brought it. And I, I, we need so much more of that in our lives. I do. So I'm grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And as a mom who, looking back, you know, just, I often remember the failures. I often remember, I mean, those are the things that stay. I wish I could say all the great times stay in my heart. The times, yeah, the times when I was not so great stay in my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Omkar. I use he, him. Um, I... I think a lot about my work. I think so deeply that, I don't know, for many, many years I've been cultivating this this practice that, like, no matter what, like, can I wake up no matter what, right, in the midst of, and I, I work in mental health, and I work with mostly suicidal kids, a lot of homicidal kids, you know, kids that could be school shooters, right? Like, so, like, really deeply, sincerely, and I'm saying this for the community, but like this this really powerful desire, not not a grasping desire, but this sincere curiosity and commitment to showing up no matter what. And not in a grasping way, but just in a loving, curious, like when I feel overwhelmed at work, like can I be with this? Like when I when I don't care about someone, can I be with my desire and compassion for myself for not caring because I'm exhausted and that opens up a little bit of space and like and it's just really a testament to this practice and and truth that's underneath of the heart that cares that if I just keep sincerely showing up and not avoiding and, and avoiding from a place of care but not avoiding from like this place of like, if I can just create the perfect life, then I, I'll be happy and I don't have to face suffering, right? But if I can just show up in the midst of suffering and do my work, then, you know, I can wake up in that and support other people in waking up in that. And, and so I, I just want to name that that works, right? That works. And, and I think also want to name the kind of like that rescuing energy that can also show up there. So it's like this kind of like a sincere, deep, caring, imperfect showing up. Like it at the edges, right? The edges of our, at the reality. Like what is the truth of like why does someone want to kill their parents? Or why does someone want to 
shoot up a school and like what is my practice in being with that and supporting and healing that and and it is a privilege and i have a lot of privilege that if we are not seeing that right that a five-year-old kid can be suicidal or you know some you know like it's just oh it's over there somewhere else in the world or you know and i think it is how 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 are we showing up at those edges where it's inconvenient or uncomfortable is is sort of what I'm holding. Thank you for your work, and thank you for your really inspiring words about showing up. Just one quick comment. Sorry to take things up. I was very uncomfortable talking about my music because it was kind of self-plugging. <laughs> so if you are interested in my music, please don't ask me about it. <laughs> Um, because I didn't want it to be about that. Okay. So let's um, let's end by uh, another beautiful tradition, uh, um, another act of um, imaginative generosity, which is sharing the merit, which is, again, uh, it's the ritualized sharing of blessings. And it's that we, in our hearts, that if there's any goodness that has come from our practice, if we've had any benefit ourselves if it were possible we offer to share it so so taking a moment to reflect on the goodness of our lives the preciousness of our lives the incredible good fortune of hearing the dharma the incredible good fortune of our companions here, our friends in the Dharma Hall, supporting us. And if there's any benefit, we would completely and gladly share it with all those who have helped us going way, way back, our ancestors, parents, friends, family, people known and unknown, to our animal companions, all those who have enriched us. And we also share it with those who might do us harm, with those who have hearts that are hard and filled with hate. And we remember our conviction that all beings everywhere can awaken, can be liberated, can have hearts that turn toward goodness and compassion. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live in harmony. Thank you for your very kind attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.